0: Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. Today's guest is one of our favorite podcast all-stars, Jonathan Baum from Ken, Muchen, and Rosenman. Jonathan spoke to us from Chicago, Illinois, where he's based. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. So we're going to jump right in. What were your early years like? Tell us about your background.
1: Well, I grew up in, first in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago and then in the Evanston, in Evanston suburb of Chicago. Uh, my father was a professor and my mother was a high school English teacher. Uh, so education was very important in our family. I had uh, um, three siblings and um, I was a pretty, uh, I guess, activist kid from an early age.
0: that's great so when and how did you decide to become a lawyer I feel like that activism might have something to do with it
1: I actually can point to a very specific event it's kind of weird when I was in I think 8th grade my parents took me to a play a show uh, it was um, Henry Fonda in a, a one man show as Clarence Darrow and I just saw that, and I saw the opportunity to 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 fight for the oppressed, and I said, okay, I want to be a lawyer.
0: That's great. Is that what you sparked? That sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice, or like, how did you develop that?
1: My passion for for pro bono for justice actually preceded my wanting to be a lawyer. Um, a lawyer, being a lawyer, was simply one way of pursuing it. I grew up in a very socially uh, social justice activist family. Um, my father was a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. And, uh, my mother was also very active in causes. My mother was once on the, had her picture, in one in one of the Chicago newspapers, because she had, um, changed herself to a tree as part of a protest to uh, prevent the destruction of this park. Um, And so my parents strongly imbibed in us this commitment to social justice. one of my uh, strong memories is when I was a, um, we had first just moved to Evanston from Hyde Park and uh, I went with my parents, I was probably uh, 10. Uh, and uh, I went with my parents on a march around the Evanston City Hall in support of a fair housing ordinance. And actually, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Sr. Uh, was was there and, and participated in the march. And so this was so there was always this passion for social justice. I think a lot of it also came uh, from uh, from our Judaism um, and the moral imperatives. That come from that, and then, well, then, then there's a personal factor, which is um, when I was a kid, particularly in junior high age, uh, I was bullied. I was beaten up by some other kids, and so I've always had a strong passion for the underdog, and a, and a real antipathy toward bullies, uh, and wanting to to set things straight and not let people with power, push pe- less powerful people around.
0: It sounds like you had quite an inspiring upbringing, um, just from your parents to your own experiences. So now you're at Caton Meech, and Rosenman. Can you tell us a little about the firm for our listeners and how you got there?
1: Yes, Caton is a firm with uh, uh, eight U.S. offices and uh, uh, two... Uh, non-U.S. offices with about 700 lawyers, which I used to think was a big firm. And some of the firms I'm encountering now, I mean, they have 2,000, 3,000 lawyers. I, I, I sometimes wonder if we're now a mid-sized firm. But um, I got to captain in kind of a roundabout way, and I'll, I'll try to, 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 to tell it as quickly as I can. When I graduated from law school, I always knew that pro bono work was important to me. I had worked in the clinic uh, at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, I clerked for a judge for a year. I then went to another law firm, which was renowned and appropriately so for its pro bono work. Uh, And I did that for a couple of years, but I really didn't enjoy the the non-pro bono work. And um, I just I was willing to do some of that, but I just couldn't do I couldn't make a, a full life of it. And then I uh, did a stint in the legal aid sector. I actually went back to the University of Chicago Law School Clinic and was a supervising attorney there for a couple of years. And then I decided to try to re-enter the law firm sphere, but in a different way. So I went around to about 20 law firms in Chicago, and I said, "I'll make you a deal. I'll give you. Uh, uh, I will give you two thirds." of the number of billable hours that you expect from a typical litigation associate. Uh, You pay me two-thirds the usual salary and let me set aside one-third of my time for pro bono work. And um, uh, almost everybody turned me down, but uh, I only needed one job and so another firm in town, uh, they bought the deal and that's what I did for five years and um, Uh, It it worked out for me. I thought it was a nice balance and everything. And then um, the problem was that I then came up for partner. And then they said, okay, if you want to be a partner, you have to give up this arrangement. And I said, well, then um, don't make me a partner. Call me of counsel or whatever and just let me keep doing what I'm doing. And they said, no, of counsel is a transitional status. It's this up or out situation. So I started looking around. And fortuitously at that time, uh, Catton was looking for a way to kind of jumpstart its pro bono program. This is now 25 years ago. Um, and um, one of the ideas they were kicking around was bringing in somebody to run the pro bono program full time. So I thought to myself, well, what would be better than one third pro bono would be three thirds pro bono. So I put together something, a proposal for something I called Director of Pro Bono Services and uh, I think there were only three or four in the country at that time and certainly none between the coasts. And uh, I sold the idea to firm management and they hired me to do it and that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years.
0: It's really interesting to hear kind of the origin story of a position like that because like you were saying there that really wasn't a thing you know when you were getting started in that position and uh, now It's such a common role in law firms, and it must have been awesome to be kind of one of the uh, founders of this kind of role.
1: Well, it's funny because uh, a couple of years ago, our firm was given uh, the Pro Bono Publico Award by the ABA, and I was at the annual meeting and being handed the award by a woman who was a partner in a Boston law firm, who I thought was around the same age as I was, and uh, she, as she gave me the award, she referred to me as the granddaddy of law firm pro bono leaders, and and and, and I kind of winced. I mean, I couldn't couldn't she have said the dean of law school of law firm pro bono leaders or something like that? But yeah, it's it, it, uh, it's I've been a pioneer.
0: So kind of talking about pioneering something. Uh, last time we talked, you told us about your amazing project with the. Jose de Diego Community Academy, which started a legal clinic on site at the school with assistance from LAF in Chicago, could you update us on this project?
1: Yes, it's uh, it's been a great success. Um, we um, we just this spring, I think, uh, we about we we've just seen now um, around five hundred clients since we established the, the clinic. Uh, it's grown tremendously. In every dimension, in number of clients served, we, there were de- there were de- months in the early days when we saw maybe three, five clients. Now, we uh, every, at every one of our monthly clinics, we consistently see at least twenty clients. Uh, we've grown to take up more of the space in the school, and and uh, to, to make sure we have enough room, interviewing rooms for all our attorneys, and and, and space, waiting space for clients. Uh, we have expanded the uh, services that we offer in terms of the areas of law. Uh, We used to, at the beginning, do everything except criminal law and immigration. And we still don't do criminal law. But in the wake of what's happened in the last couple of years, we felt that we, and particularly serving a, working at a school that is in in the heart of a, a heavily Latino community we said that we just could no longer ignore the immigration um, issues and so we now do immigration counseling and we in fact um, host, we, we ran, uh, we brought in another partner, the National Immigrant Justice Center to help us do a, a Know Your Rights session uh, last year for uh, immigrants who might have, be having uh, contact with uh, immigration enforcement authorities.
0: So I might be mistaken, but doesn't the clinic have an anniversary coming up? I can't. We remember. did.
1: We uh, we we in April we had our fifth anniversary, and um, it was. Uh, I, I, I I'm I'm so proud of it. I feel like it's my baby, my little baby that's growing up. And but I'm i I'm I so worried in the early days. You know, was this something that we could sustain? And I now feel like it's so firmly planted, uh, both in the firm and in the. Chicago community, that um, it, it's here to stay, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. Um, it's, um, in fact, also, by the way, speaking of, of, of emulation, and um, there are now, I think, that LAF is about to open uh, its fourth uh, legal aid clinic in Chicago uh which is a uh, neighborhood based that they're partnering with a law firm on and uh, so we're, we're really pleased to have been you know a role model
0: that's great and it's definitely um an amazing project so you gotta pivot a little you've worked on some very hot button relevant issues such as gun control and i saw hate crime cases recently at a time where issues such as these are very prevalent what do you think about what is going on in the world currently
1: Well, it's hard to ignore the elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump. Uh, I like to tell people that there is this tiny, tiny silver lining on this big black cloud, which is that Donald Trump has energized, if not radicalized the legal profession, as far as I can tell, both in my experience within our firm and, and, and talking to people in other firms. There are people, in, in, whether it's in areas of immigration or uh, the environment or whatever, there, the, um, there are people who are not necessarily on the left, who are in the middle or even lean right or non-political. But lawyers, I find, not all, but, but many, many, um, are so outraged at the assault on the rule of law itself. That they are moved to action and that's why you've seen all the people come out at the airports when the travel ban and the lawyers uh you know helping with addressing what's going on at the border um there is uh people want to help and people want to um show that that the law makes a difference and that the law is there to protect people um and it's and, and i find this This enthusiasm, both from the bottom up, that is, from the youngest associates clamoring to be engaged in this kind of work, to a level of support from our firm management, which is as high as it's ever been. And is saying, you know, you know, I I mean, just for example, when, when there was the, uh, the, the whole travel ban crisis, um, the chairman of our firm, actually, he called me. And said, What are we doing for the refugees? So it's a very um, stimulating climate for pro bono work. The challenge for pro bono coordinators, especially, is that there is all this energy. People want to, to help, and they're the most attractive pro bono opportunities are the most highly visible, sort of on the front lines, you know, of which, you know, being out at the airport is the most dramatic. One of our biggest challenges now is to channel all of this energy into a broader range of meeting a broader range of pro bono needs. So yes, there's a crisis at the border. Yes, there's, but people are still being evicted from their homes. People are still losing their social security benefits. People are still, you know, needing help with child custody issues. And so it's, it's, it's a real challenge to say, to, to, to show lawyers that there's a lot of different ways in which they can help, which not necessarily going to get them on the news.
0: Yeah, there are still those bread, bread and butter cases still out right. there. And also after all these crises, there's like the long-term effects, which I think people kind of think about the short term and don't think about all the ripple effects of these things too. And I think that's also something where people can uh, start helping in addition to the bread and butter that they didn't necessarily think of or was sexy as they say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to avoid word, using the word sexy, but that I think that, that, <laughs> it, it, that does come to mind.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. So um, uh, So what are we working on? Um, uh, we have a lot of interesting um is going on. Um, we, it, As I mentioned, our work is, to some extent, shaped by current events, so we have been doing a lot of immigration-related work. Uh, we've always done asylum cases, but in addition to those, uh, we've uh, done um, uh, DACA clinics and, uh, as I mentioned, these Know Your Rights uh, sessions on, on, on teaching immigrants on how they can uh, appropriately respond to to immigration enforcement efforts Uh, and we now have, as of a few minutes ago, uh, I think 26 of our lawyers and seven of our offices have signed up to deal in one way or another with the um, aftermath of the uh, family separation crisis at the border. Uh, uh, One of our attorneys is headed down to the border. Uh, she's interesting. She's a corporate partner, but uh, she speaks Spanish, and, and you know she's committed. She's going down to work in a detention center, but others are are doing more work remotely or with in their local communities with people who have been released uh, and dispersed around the country. Um, so a lot a lot of immigration. and just the, the I hate to call it routine asylum cases. I mean, one we had last year. was very powerful was a young woman from 19 year old woman from um, Somalia who had um, fled the country because her uncle had sold her to a a warlord of a a terrorist organization, uh, Al-Shabaab. And she declined to wed him and fled the country. She traveled through, I think, a dozen countries uh, in Africa and then Latin America to get to the U.S. border, crossed into the U.S. and then got detained for two months at a detention center at a, a, a county jail in uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, we took her case to hearing for asylum, and uh, the judge um, the judge didn't even we had submitted the papers, and the judge didn't even want to require her to testify, and and granted her asylum, and that was a very powerful case. And so, a lot of a lot of a lot of immigration work. I'm trying to think what's new. So we've expanded into interesting areas of discrimination work we're currently handling a case, I'm actually working on it personally, involving a transgender individual who was denied admission to a nightclub because, and I quote, uh, no way in hell I'm letting in a dude in a dress. Uh, And we are in the process of settling that case for very substantial relief. And uh, so we're proud to be on the, on the, on the uh, front lines of that struggle too. Uh, and then there's a lot of the work that comes out of our clinic uh, and and other similar work in our, in our other offices. Uh, since we last talked, uh, we had the wrap up of the clemency program in which um, uh, our attorneys were able to help uh, several individuals who had been sentenced to very long sentences for nonviolent offenses uh, get clemency based on the fact that today they would not be sentence to that, to the sentences of that length. Um, and we continue to do a lot of uh, transactional pro bono work. Most of our lawyers are not litigators. Uh, and so we do a lot of work with non- nonprofit organizations, uh, getting them incorporated bylaws and other governance work, uh, uh, contracts. Uh, we do a lot of uh, intellectual property work. Uh, one of our strongest departments in the firm in terms of pro bono participation is, is our IP practice. Um, and they've done a lot of work uh, often, again, I talked about sort of helping the, the little guy against the, the big bully. And uh, we've seen that in our IP practice where some some small charitable organization uh, is threatened that they should stop using some logo or something that because it's similar to some gigantic corporation and uh, we, we go in and make sure that they have the right to continue to do what they've been doing to, to raise their funds.
0: That is a great reminder that pro bono isn't just for litigators, which is something we talk about sometimes, but I do think that there's a lot of people who are overwhelmed because they're not litigators, but there is something for everyone. And just looking at your pro bono page, you guys do such a wide variety of cases, just like from the ones you just told us about. Uh, I think it's really exciting to keep kind of following up the, what you guys are doing.
1: I think I want to say another great story about about expanding boundaries. So we have an associate who is in our um, commercial finance practice who signed up with a program that we do in Chicago, uh, uh, where uh, we're part of a. a, a a group of law firms that regularly uh, staff the domestic violence courthouse in Chicago. And sadly enough, Chicago is it has enough domestic violence that there's an entire courthouse devoted to domestic violence. And, and so one day a month is the cat and day at that, at that courthouse representing principally women seeking uh, civil orders of protection against their abusers. So this commercial finance associate, so no litigation experience at all, he signs up to do this. He goes in, and his client is is, is a woman with three children, who is husband—that I'm sorry, I'm sorry—the the father of the children um, had they had the children living in a homeless shelter, even though she was the mother was living with her family with her family, and she thought that this was not, you know, was not a good environment for the children. And so we sought a protective order, and the judge denied the protective order because he said that what she was alleging didn't amount to abuse. And then, uh, this is on a Thursday. Over the weekend, um, this lawyer uh, in our firm uh, hears from his client who tells him that the father has taken the children someplace out of state, someplace in, the, in, in Indiana, um, and, uh, our, my, our guy does a little bit of research and discovers that con- concealing the location of, uh, children is, is, is a form of abuse under the Domestic Violence Act. So he goes back into court on Monday morning and asks the judge, uh, goes on the emergency motion for reconsideration, uh, and explains that the, that, the, that, the, that the guy has uh, taken the kids to some undisclosed location in, in Indiana. And the, the judge grants the order of protection. So then, the uh, this intrepid associate gets uh, his. Um, um, so he's got this order of protection in hand, but he's got to serve it. So he this guy, he knows this guy is in this town in Indiana, but it turns out that the address the guy has given is is phony or it's a business or something or other. So the sheriff of the County in which this is located in Indiana says he can't he can't serve the guy because um, he, he just can't find him so this associate says to the sheriff he says "Are there any homeless shelters in your county and the sheriff says he doesn't think so so our associate does some more research and finds that there is indeed a homeless shelter in that county and he gives the sheriff the address of the homeless shelter the sheriff goes to the address, finds the father there with the kids, serves the father with the order, takes custody of the kids, and then a couple hours later they are reunited with their mother. And this is just a great story, and it's particularly a great story because this guy is not a litigator. He's a commercial finance lawyer, you know, but it shows you what you can do.
0: Well, that's an amazing and powerful story, yeah. Uh, so, we're launching a new segment on the podcast called Tell Us About Your First Time. Could you tell us about your first or one of the early pro bono matters that you handled?
1: No, this is by far not, not my first, but it was a long time ago. And, and I, I have to tell it's my favorite pro bono case. So, I'm going to tell you my favorite pro bono case. There was a church in the Chicago suburb of Schaumburg. And the Prince, the Prince of Peace Lutheran Church. And Prince of Peace Lutheran Church wanted to participate in a local program for sheltering the homeless, which was called PADS, Public Action to Deliver Shelter. And the way PADS worked was that groups of um, houses of worship combined to provide nightly shelter during the winter for the homeless in their community. So there would be, so let's say the Catholic Church would do Monday night, the Lutheran Church would do Tuesday night, the synagogue would do Wednesday night and so forth. So Prince of Peace Lutheran Church wanted to participate in this program. And so they signed up to do it. And then the village of Schaumburg told them to cease and desist that if they, that, that sheltering the homeless was would, would in violation of their zoning status. And if they persisted in this, they would be subject to daily fines. So I took on, as a client, this Prince of Peace Lutheran Church against the village of Schaumburg. And it was, it was, a, it was a great case because um, we had basically two arguments about why they, uh, the, the village was wrong. Number one, that they were, uh, had not correctly interpreted the zoning ordinance because the zoning ordinance said that a church was a place for public worship plus other accessory uses. And an accessory use was a use, is defined as a use that is commonly incidental to the use of a church. So at the hearing, we put on a professor of religious history who told about how throughout the ages, churches have sheltered people in distress. And so it is a commonly incidental use of a church. But we also argued that if they interpreted the ordinance so narrowly as to exclude this activity that they would be violating the free exercise First Amendment rights of the church. And to support that, I got to do what every lawyer litigator dreams of, which is I got to put on a bishop as a witness. And I put on the bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America for the Metropolitan Chicago Synod. And I said, you know, Reverend, and I said, Bishop Hicks, does does the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America have a position regarding its member congregation sheltering the homeless? He said, yes. I said, what is that position? He said, it's their spiritual duty. So then the, um, the lawyer for the village of Schomburg turns out she was a Lutheran and said that, well, that wasn't Lutheran kind of Lutheranism that she had grown up with. And they and, and attempted to create this sort of theological dispute, which just played into our hands because one of the classic First Amendment violations is entangling religion. Um, but the most important thing that happened in the case was that um, the this was going to be decided first by the zoning board of appeals, and then, if necessary, in court. So the um, uh, the the faith leader of every faith community in Schomburg uh, signed a petition to the zoning board saying they should let this church shelter the homeless. and Every member of the Zoning Board of Appeals was a member of one of the faith communities whose leaders had signed the petition. So um, anyway, so they were in a a tough spot. Um, And so what they ultimately decided to do was because they wanted to, uh, they they upheld the ruling of the zoning administrator, but they immediately amended the zoning ordinance to list um, sheltering the homeless as a protected, as a, uh, as a uh, uh, protected use of 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 a church. And then so it was it was it was a fun case it was great victory it was a good cause and then there was a fun, final little piece to it which was interesting. We had hired a uh, a court reporter to transcribe the proceedings in the zoning board of appeals because that was going to be the only record we would have if we had to take it to court. And she sent us uh, her bill for her services. And she said, I know you all are doing this pro bono, and I wish I could afford to do this pro bono, but I'm the sole support of my family. Um, But she said that she had cut her rate by one-third as her contribution. And I was just so touched because it shows you that, you know, pro bono is contagious and that really gets to people. So that's my favorite pro bono case.
0: That's definitely a very heartwarming story. And then you have that added effect of like people crossing their religious lines to unite under this one cause just for, I guess, a right. right. spiritual cause. And that's also an amazing thing. So it's summer associate season and soon-to-be recruiting season for next summer. What advice do you have for law students slash lawyers who are just starting their careers? Well,
1: one of the things that I, I, I stress to them is the importance of pro bono. Uh, a lot of law students um, are very public interest minded and they, at least many of them, say they, they, they're, they're interested in public interest careers. And most of them will not end up, at least in the near future, uh, doing full-time public interest for, for a variety of reasons. There aren't very many public interest jobs. They don't pay very well. Students have loans to pay and so forth. And the concern that I have when I talk to a lot of them is that that when confronted with the reality that they are not in fact going to be doing full time public interest work, that there is a, a tendency to do what I call going over to the dark side, which is to say, okay, if I can't work full time in the public interest, then to hell with the poor, and I'll just make as much money as I can. And I, you know, I, I stress to them. That it's so important to carve out pro bono as part of a private practice career, not only for yourself and your own self-fulfillment, but because a a tremendous proportion of the hours of public service law that are rendered to the poor and the powerless are rendered not by people who are doing it as a full-time job, but people who are doing it as part of their um, private practice as pro bono. And so if you really care about the causes that you say you care about, you know it, you are you're shortchanging the poor and the powerless if you go into private practice and say and and close the door on your on your public interest concerns. So I strongly encourage the summer associates the, to you know pursue pro bono and um, to, to, to carve it out into into their career and. Uh, I, I encourage them, whether it's interviewing with our firm or with other firms, to, as they're going through the interviewing process, to ask about pro bono. Um, because um, there's, you know, t- basically three kinds of firms when it comes to pro bono. There are the vast majority of firms um, who, for whom you're asking about pro bono is sort of irrelevant. That's not how they're on the basis on which they're going to select you or not. Then there are a significant number of firms like ours where we're, really happy to be asked about pro bono because it gives us a chance to, to brag about what we do. And then there's a small minority of firms, I guess, uh, for whom pro bono, asking about pro bono is a negative. But as I say to them, you know, um, that's, those are firms you don't want to work for. because if that's the way they feel, you don't want to work for them, and the sooner you know that, the better. So I, I encourage asking about pro bono. Uh, I encourage um, asking detailed questions, Um, and um, I think that, you know, being an associate in a large law firm is difficult. It's well compensated, but it's hard, especially in terms of the hours, and um, so they have to make their way and learn to balance things. And uh, one of the reasons it's important to work for a firm that is supportive of pro bono work is. That uh, there's only 24 hours in a day, and um, so if the firm considers pro bono work something that's sort of that's fine for you to do, but it doesn't count. um, That that it virtually makes it impossible, certainly as a younger attorney. So I encourage them to ask about pro bono to 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 carve out uh, pro. I actually tell them, you know, this may be counterintuitive, but you should take on a pro bono matter right away. Not a big one. I'm not suggesting that you know in a first year in practice you should file a federal class action lawsuit, but you should begin to you should incorporate it into your work right away, because as you spend time at the firm, you you know your plate just fills up, and and your plate is cleanest when you start, and if you build it in at the beginning so that everybody you work with knows that that's part of you know your practice here, um, you're, you'll be better
0: positioned that is great and insightful advice that uh I hope people take on because it is important to kind of be consistent in making sure you take on those cases especially if that's something you want to do ultimately like you said how people like I can't I have loans uh, I can't get a public interest job I'm just going to devote all my time to billable hours but I mean if that's something you want to do and you should do that you should keep at it So who is your pro bono role model slash access to justice role model and why?
1: Role model? Uh, I've had a lot of role models. Um, uh, One of my mentors, uh, strongest mentors, was Abner Mikva. Abner Mikva was uh, a uh, U.S. congressman, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District Columbia Circuit. He was also White House counsel for President Clinton, taught for many years. Uh, I worked in his campaigns, congressional campaigns, as the young person and actually worked on his congressional staff. Uh, he was a graduate of University of Chicago Law School, editor in chief of the Law Review. I mean, he was a fine lawyer as well as, as, a, as a politician. And um, he, uh, you know, underscored the nobility of. Of, of the law, um, I've had other. There was a, uh, I uh, when I was at another firm, there was a partner who was the longtime chair of their pro bono uh, committee, who taught me a lot of tricks of the trade and how to, how to uh, protect yourself uh, in the uh, uh, you know when in you know maybe the political unease around a particular pro bono matter. Um, you know, I was always a big fan of Atticus Finch. Uh, (laughs) So
0: So we're going to end this on a kind of bittersweet note. We are sadly saying farewell this summer to the legendary Tammy Taylor. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about her and her legacy?
1: You know, when I saw that Tammy was leaving, I sent her an email and she told me that it took it took her several days to reply to my email because it had made her cry. Uh, And what I said to her and I would say you know she has been the heart and soul of BBI and she I regretted that I I felt like she never got the recognition that 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 she deserved Um, and that she assured me that that was not the case that she had gotten plenty of recognition but um no she i mean you know of course you know esper esther was the inspiration and the leader and but i felt like you know hammy sort of held dbi together and um she was always so fun to 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 be with at the conferences in fact i told her in this email that i had been looking at the calendar and trying to figure out, before I got this email, I, I had been trying to figure out I was going to be able to make it to next year's conference, and I was thinking that I couldn't, but then I thought, well, oh, I can't disappoint Tammy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and maybe that's what made her cry. I don't know. Um, but Tammy is, uh, she's a treasure.
0: I'm sure she's going to get emotional after hearing this, too. Um, I'm definitely going to miss her and everyone at PBI. So thank you for joining us today. And uh, thank you for sharing your experiences with us.
1: Glad to talk to you.
0: New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It is quick and easy to do. We appreciate the feedback and help us make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. Looking forward to the PBI annual dinner? The dinner will be held at Gotham Hall in New York City on Thursday night, October 4th. More information can be found on our website, probonoinst.org, or call Danny Reed at 202-729-6691.